partner looked at me and said, we were having an argument and said, you're just making this shit up as we go along. And I had to say, well, duh, yeah. Like, what? how else could we ever learn anything? Or how could we know how to do, you know, you just can't know automatically how to do this. So welcome to Normalizing Non-Monogamy the podcast where we interview incredible people from across the entire spectrum of non-monogamy to hear their fascinating stories. We strive to bring guests on the show who have a healthy approach to non-monogamy. However, it's important to remember that everyone does it a little bit differently, and the views and opinions expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect our own. Additionally, we produce this show for entertainment purposes only. Please be aware that we aren't doctors or therapists. Consult a medical professional for anything regarding your health that you might learn about on the show. Enjoy. Welcome to episode 90. On a Monday. Monday. We're Finn and Emma. I think we're a little too overzealous on the Monday, even (laughs) though we've been told by some people they appreciate it. Yeah, we should probably keep doing it. All right, we'll keep it toned up. (laughs) Today we have an interview with Kathy, who is a counselor, nurse, and author from California. She is the author of three books, actually. The first one is The Jealousy Workbook, and the second is Love in Abundance, A Counselor's Advice on Open Relationships. I actually might have got those out of order. I'm not sure which one was published first. But the point is, the new one she just released on October 4th is The Polyamory Breakup Book. And don't worry, this episode is not just a sales pitch for her book. She's basically going to talk through her story of exploring non-monogamy for 50 years this year, actually. All the links to her books and her website will be on our in our show notes, though, too. So um, stay tuned for this awesome interview. First off, a couple of quick announcements. Very quick. We are, we are in Boston at the moment. Yep. And we have a meet and greet this Friday, October 18th, and we are actually now co-hosting it with Ginger and Ryan from Life on the Swing from Set. From Life on the Swing Set. Fame. Or they also have their podcast, The Intellectual Foreplay. They do, very much so. So they're going to be coming to join us and uh, probably 18 to 20 other people or more. Maybe if you join, it'll be more. Yep. And so, yeah, all the details for that and our meet and greet on October 26th in Toronto, both free events are, uh, again, all the details on our website, normalizingnonmonogamy.com. Under events. The other announcement we have, our Patreon call is this Wednesday. Uh, um, calls. Okay. Patreon calls. Our Patreon calls, plural, uh, is this Wednesday, October 16th. They are at 9 p.m. Eastern and then another one at 9 p.m. Pacific time. On Pacific time. If you want to join, we'd love to have you. You can go and find all the details about that and how to join on our Patreon page, which is a links on our website. And you can come to both if you want. Two calls for the price of one. Yep. As they say. True. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We're struggling today. I'm not struggling at all. Uh, So it's a big week. Uh, We're happy you're here on a Monday. Yes. And we also wanted to mention quickly on our website as well, since we've plugged that website like three times already, you can find a resources page with a whole bunch of resources and discounts on STI testing, lingerie, condoms, super cool. And and other resources resources that are free as well. So it's not all... 
uh, profit-driven. We're not a profit-driven machine is what Emma's trying to say. That's true. <laughs> I, think I hope I didn't imply that. <laughs> it was a little implied is what you were trying to say. Okay, let's go talk to Kathy. Let's do that, and we'll try to get our shit together for the outro. <laughs> Uh, welcome to the show, Kathy. Thank you for taking some time out of your afternoon to chat with us. And uh, we're excited to have you on the show and get tap into some of that wisdom. You've been doing this a long time, this this non-monogamy thing. So Yeah, thanks. that is true. Yes. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. For the listeners that obviously don't know you, I know you sent us a little bio, but do you mind going over and just giving you a little overview of who you are? Yes, uh, I am a counselor, a nurse, and a hypnotherapist. I'm in private practice in Berkeley, California. Uh, And a a lot of the clients I see are trying to navigate some form of open or non-monogamous relationship. And so uh, that's a lot of the issues that I deal with every day with my clients. Yeah, and you've you've been exploring it yourself for, for quite a while as well, correct? That's true. I have been uh, what I call a card-carrying bisexual and polyamorous since 1969 uh, and have been in a life partnership with two partners for many, many years. Yeah. And for me, it's really been about being able to have personal freedom and autonomy to explore who I am as a person and to not have a lot of restrictions or control put on me by a relationship being able to continue my own personal journey and be close to people in a way that works for me yeah right well how did you how did you i guess learn about non-monogamy or decide to start exploring it back in uh before 1969 Well, I I was an adolescent at that time, and it was obvious to me that I had strong uh, emotional and intimate attractions towards both men and women. Uh, In those days, there were only two genders. We've expanded that quite a bit since then, but at that time, there were only two genders, male and female, that we knew of. Uh, And I knew that I had strong uh, emotional affinity towards both genders. And I didn't think it was going to be very likely that I would be perfectly happy living happily ever after with one person of one, any one gender. So I decided I wanted to have the opportunity to explore both. And had, had you had anybody like lay the groundwork for you or set examples for you in doing that? Or how, I guess, how did you start exploring that? Uh, well, at the time, I had started a my very first and new relationship with a woman friend, another adolescent like myself, exploring. But I knew that I didn't really want to be only with one person. And I, there was not really anyone laying the groundwork at all. Uh, I think because at that time, being queer or gay or lesbian or any of those things was so completely beyond the pale that being non-monogamous wasn't any farther out there. (laughs) So I think, uh, thank goodness, being gay or queer is very much more accepted and understood uh, than it was much more so than it was then. But at that time I figured, well, I'm already like out here in the totally deviant category. So why not? Right. Yeah. 
And so how, how did it look in those early days? Was it um, just like having multiple partners? And I guess, how did you break that to this, this new woman that you were seeing at the time that, that you were interested in doing this? Cause you said well, was- we, were, we were just, you know, teenagers. And I think, you know, when you're a teenager, you're just kind of stumbling along trying to figure, figure it out. out yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I didn't do everything right. And, uh, you know, I think that's part of what I think is so great now is that, people who want to explore an open relationship or non-monogamy there are lots of resources to help you along the way there are books there are classes there are websites there are podcasts like yours <laughs> whereas i think when we were young there just wasn't that option you just were having to try to figure it out on your own so i really encourage my clients and anyone who i can talk to to, to avail themselves of these resources since they didn't exist before obviously the internet didn't exist then either but there were no books or anything so uh quite a few a few years later uh my partner's partner looked at me and said we were having an argument and said you're just making this shit up as we go along and i had to say well die yeah like what how else could we ever learn anything or how could we know how to do you know you just can't know automatically how to do this so now people don't have to say we're making it up as we go along people can say well wow other people have done this they've learned some things about it there's some knowledge out there that you can tap into so hopefully we won't have to make the same mistakes yeah how did your friends and family like react to your choices back then and if were people supportive and open-minded about it or not really no definitely not uh my I was raised by psychotic Christians. <laughs> My family were, you know, born again Christians in New Jersey. So you can imagine they did not really react positively. Uh, part of the reason I fled and moved to California, <laughs> where uh, I was much more accepted than I was in New Jersey. Uh, I certainly never expected the support or acceptance of my family or friends because when you're doing something that goes completely against the grain of everything they believe in and everything yeah. they've based their lives on, you can't expect that kind of acceptance from them. It would be nice, but it's just not realistic. So uh, I was never, um, I, I have to say it, it never bothered me much that my family and friends were not accepting because I wouldn't really have expected it of them. I think nowadays it would probably be more realistic for people to think that, well, maybe my family can kind of wrap their head around this idea. Yeah. Right. Did yours did yours ever start to come around with it after they realized it wasn't something that was going to wear off? Uh my parents never did and as I say I never really expected that from them. Um one of my, I have I'm from a family of five kids. My one sister has been uh, more accepting than my three brothers have. Okay. You know, even she kind of scratches her head and says, hmm, you know, what is this all about?" Uh but uh it, she's the only one of my siblings that has been comfortable coming to visit me and bringing her child and having her child around me. Other family members have felt we don't want our children around you because you'd be a bad influence. Uh, you know, as if that's really yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, 
I mean, obviously, my family didn't influence me, and I don't think I'm going to influence anyone else just by my example. Right. Yeah. If anything else, you'd teach them another way to think about it. (laughs) I have been privileged to help raise two godsons, sons of close friends, uh, and they have grown up. They're grown up now. They've grown up from infancy just coming to my home, knowing both of my life partners, and just knowing that it's possible for someone to have two partners. And they're just very, you know, the godsons are totally nonchalant about it. Like, eh, you know. Yeah. It is what it is. This is this is the way she chose. And, and it gives them an example, too, that they don't have to go down the same path everyone else is. Well, I think to them, it's just like all oh, those boring old people. They're just... Oh, so, that's true. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, so... so- so so being that you did kind of, in a sense, you sort of blazed your own trail. Like you said, there weren't a ton of resources out there for you. Mm-hmm. What, what were some of the things like that you learned along the way that were really instrumental in, in kind of shaping how you navigated and, and grew into the non-monogamy sort of for yourself? For me, uh, it was a a big learning curve, learning to be more uh, accommodating and to compromise more with my partners and their needs. Uh, I think I had a very strong reaction as a woman to the previous narrative of the woman has to be subservient to the man and the women have to go along with whatever the man wants and all of that. Uh, my mother was a prime example of that being very subservient because she was, you know, believed in the whole Christian dogma of, you know, the woman was made from Adam's rib and all that kind of ridiculous nonsense. So, uh, and the woman's to be the servant and helpmate of the man and all that. So, so I went a little far in the opposite direction at first in feeling like, I, as a woman, should have total freedom to do whatever I want, and too bad if my partners don't like it. Uh, My two life partners have turned out to be male, so uh, I had that uh, orientation that, you know, I have to be strong and not uh, allow myself to be have my life dictated in any way by men. So uh, I think I really at first went a little too far in that direction and was not as I think as caring and loving and accommodating to their needs and feelings. Uh, And I see this a lot in my clients who, when they first decide to be polyamorous or non-monogamous, they just have this attitude of, I could do whatever I want and I don't care how much it hurts anybody else. And that doesn't work. (laughs) I can tell you from personal and professional experience, that does not work uh, because when you're in a polyamorous relationship, you're not single. If you're single, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you are in control of your life and how you want to relate to any person or persons in any kind of sexual or romantic relationship. When you're in a committed relationship, you're in a partnership and it's a constant kind of uh, negotiation really. And it's kind of a dance between how much do I get to be my own person and do whatever I want as an individual? And how much am I part of this couple or relationship, this partnership? And how much do I need to accommodate to my partner's needs and desires? So uh, I think that is probably the single most difficult thing for anyone in a polyamorous relationship, trying to make your partners very happy and trying to make yourself happy at the same time. Right. 
Well, and, and along those same lines, I think maybe the flip side of that is it's some, something else that people struggle with is how do I give my partner the freedom and autonomy to do what they want and and be supportive and be okay with it? Is is that something else that, that you had to work through yourself as you kind of navigated this? Yes. And, uh, you know, I wrote a book called The Jealousy Workbook, and I teach a lot of workshops on jealousy and managing jealousy. And I sometimes start by saying the reason I'm so qualified to teach these classes is that I started out as the most jealous person on the planet Earth. And uh, I sometimes say it's because I'm Italian. In fact, I'm Sicilian, American, and we are very possessive, jealous, very passionate people, very passionate about the things we love and even about our partners. And we can be very, very possessive and very controlling of them. So uh, it's very difficult for me to be able to feel secure enough to say, I don't want to control you. I don't want to be making a lot of rules for you. I need to know what makes me feel fundamentally safe and loved. And I need to ask for those things that will make me feel safe and make me feel that I know I'm loved and I know I'm not being mistreated or harmed. I'm not exposing myself to something that will be toxic for me. But at the same time saying, I don't want to own, possess, or control you. I want you to be uh, your own person and have the autonomy and the opportunity to grow and change as a person. Because I do think that is one of the most problematic things about monogamy. I certainly know some monogamous couples that are very, have very happy and healthy relationships and they give each other a lot of freedom in every way, except for they've made an agreement not to have sex or romantic relationships with anyone else. However, I see that most monogamous couples, most of the ones that I've seen anyway, have extended that possessiveness and control way beyond sex and romance. Mm -hmm. And they have forced their partner to stay in a very small box where they're not allowed to change and grow because that feels too threatening to the relationship. So I think it really is challenging for monogamous couples to restrict the sex and romance to exclusivity within the relationship without restricting their partner in other ways that really have nothing to do with sex and romance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's very hard to have the, the level of security. Right. Self. Right. Well, that's how, how did you, how did you teach yourself that to let your partners go and have that autonomy? Well, I think for me anyway, and for most people, it seems to happen over time. Your partner goes out and has another relationship. They keep coming home to you Mm -hmm. and they keep loving you and nothing's changed. (laughs) Everything's the same. I shouldn't say nothing's changed, but nothing, nothing bad has happened. Right. Right. So it's going to change someone in some way to open themselves up to a level of emotional intimacy with another person. But uh, usually that change is a positive one. You know, they become a happier person. They become a, 
a more interesting person. They become a, a, a more well-rounded person. They learn a lot. They become more skilled and emotionally mature because of the things they've learned in this outside relationship. So uh, if they keep coming back to you and you can see that it's been healthy for them and that it hasn't hurt you or hurt your relationship, then you eventually just say, well, What's the big deal? Right. <laughs> At some point, you know, right. I think it's harder for people like myself, who I was raised in a very insecure family environment with poverty and uh, a, a great feeling of scarcity in terms of uh, love and attention, just because of raised in a large family with a, a mother that was totally overwhelmed with five kids and, and an abusive husband and all kinds of other problems. So I think for people who have those insecurities from their childhood, they have to work harder. It's going to take longer, take more work. Uh, some people, and for instance, one of my partners is like this. One of my two partners is like this, was raised in a very secure, very loving environment and in a more affluent situation economically and just grew up with that feeling of the world is a safe place people are going to treat me well i'm smart i'm happy i'm going to succeed everything's going to go well you know if if you're raised in that way and you have that attitude you're much less likely to be kind of stumped by a polyamorous situation you're much right. more likely to feel I'm resilient. I have the resources. I've always been very loved. My partner loves me. What do I have to worry about? Yeah. But if you're raised feeling very insecure, like I was, uh, and plenty of people have had it way worse than me. I'm not trying to um, make out like I had such a terrible childhood. I, I didn't. But uh, if you're raised in a situation where you do not feel secure and do not feel loved, you are going to have to work much harder to feel safe in a polyamorous situation. Yeah. Obviously, your partner or partners can do a lot to make you feel safer and make yeah. you feel But you're going to have to do a lot of the internal work because no matter what they do, you're still going to have some of those fears and anxieties. Right. Well, and like you said, too, a lot of that just comes down to time uh, where you can say all day long, like, I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving you. I'll be here when you get back. I'll come back to you. But there's only so much saying you can do before you have to start experiencing it that they go out and they come back and you're there or you go out and you come back. And it's that that conditioning to say, like, yeah, this isn't just words. They're not empty words. Right. I think. Yeah. Yes. And it's very, very important for you as say the partner that's being left at home while your partner goes out <laughs> and sees someone uh it's very important for you to feel a sense of agency over how things are unfolding if you feel powerless if you feel like your partner's doing whatever they want and they're not really working with you as a team to make this work that is going to be that much harder it's going to be mm -hmm. much that you have to feel like okay we're trying to negotiate this not that i'm trying to say well i'm going to tell you what you can do and what you can't do but that just that your partner is taking you into consideration and giving you some control over how things are going to unfold such as how much time you're going to spend with other people what kind of conditions in terms of safer sex or you know where you know what how you're going to handle it in terms of like public relations in terms of disclosing to other people are you going to keep this private or are people are you going to be out where people can see you or you know all these other things if you feel like you have some measure of agency over how that's all going to happen 
you can feel so much safer and so much more comfortable with it. Yeah. 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 Ha- having control of your own situation is, is pretty powerful. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. And I know in one of the, in one of the emails that we exchanged, you said that, that polyamory, you know, well, it is about sex and having, you know, sexual relations with other people. It's also a lot about love and int- intimacy and community for you. And I wanted to see if you could expand on that a little bit and kind of what your view on, on relationships is. And, and also maybe just real quick to build on that, like how has it looked for you over the years and, and has it shifted? Yeah. How has what looked? I'm not quite sure. The Like polyamory or non-monogamy in terms of like how many, maybe just like how many partners you've had, do you live together? Like what, what has it like physically, what form and shape has it taken over the years and has, has it shifted and grown and ebbed and flowed? Yes. Uh, well, I'll start with uh, Emma's <laughs> question. Yep. Sorry. That's right. For uh, for me, uh, having the opportunity just to be open to getting to know people and building friendships and community with other people is just as important as whether you decide to expand that to a sexual or romantic relationship. Because if you are in a monogamous relationship and you've made a you've made an absolute rule that you can't ever expand any friendship to sex or romance or anything more than a friendship, then that's going to limit how you get to know other people and what kinds of friendships you can have with other people. My experience is I have had these two partners for uh, almost 40 years now, and I'm very happy. I don't particularly need or want any other partners, but I often want to expand my friendships with other people to include a more emotional closeness and intimacy, a deeper level of companionship that wouldn't really be possible if I didn't also have the choice of taking that to sex and romance. I don't want to. I just don't have the time and energy. But <laughs> if I didn't have that opportunity or that option available to me, I would be very much afraid of becoming more emotionally intimate with other people because it could lead there. <laughs> and I think a lot of people do just totally stunt their relationships with other people and don't build a tight sense of community with other people because they're so afraid, well, any level of intimacy could go in a sexual or romantic direction and I'm not allowed to go there. <laughs> so uh, I, that's particularly important for people like myself and my partners, because we made a choice, we made a conscious decision early in life not to have children. And because, uh, for me anyway, being so estranged from my family because of my lifestyle choices and my sexual orientation, uh, not having children and not having a biological family, really, having close, intimate relationships with my community and my friends is much more important. I think for people that get married, have children, have that more traditional extended family, that may not be as important. They may already have that support system and that network of feeling they belong to a family and community. I feel like I had to create that out of raw raw yeah. material <laughs> you, you had to create your chosen family yes and i think for a lot of polyamorous people because they may be estranged from family or rejected by family 
they they may need that more than your average kind of straight family. Certainly when I was much younger and when gay people were despised and shunned by their families and society, uh, queer people did create their own families of choice and create a very tight-knit communities, which really came to the forefront during the 1980s and 90s during the AIDS epidemic when partners and ex-lovers and friends would all take care of each other when they were sick because their families had abandoned them. Right, yeah. I've certainly seen that in action at at that time with queer people. And I think now I see it a, a fair amount with polyamorous people that their families have rejected them or don't want anything to do with their relationships or their the way the families they've created yeah yeah i I totally agree and again as you you've kind of voiced and and shared with us like starting in the the late 60s and then you've seen everything from the aids epidemic through to today where like you said earlier people are now comfortable to identify as gender non-binary or all all different types of gender and sexual orientation that I mean, the the whole paradigm has shifted over the years. Mm-hmm. Has your has sort of the way you've explored non-monogamy and like what it physically looked like for you, has that shifted over the years, or has it remained fairly consistent? Well, I I think it's pretty typical for polyamorous people that when you're young in your twenties and thirties, it's much more about sex and romance and emotional intimacy and like exploring getting to know people it's very uh, you're just trying to uh meet people get to know them understand them i think the interpersonal relationships are very very important i think as you age uh, for there's a whole big group now that call ourselves poly geezers <laughs> <laughs> There's a guy uh, named Tom Snutledge who is uh, writing a book on that subject, has done a lot of research on the topic. Uh, and his uh, findings are that for people in my age group and older, uh, a big benefit of open relationship is that if you're sick, you have other people, you have more people to take care of you. Uh, and when you're, and I've seen plenty of polyamorous families who have had like an elderly parent who moved in with them and there were more people to help care for that elderly parent it's a kind of interesting because sometimes it's been an elderly parent that always you know rejected and, and was against <laughs> this whole thing but now they're benefiting from it uh, so um if one person in your group is sick or if you have an elderly relative that's sick that you have to take in then you have more of a support system and uh i think i've seen other poly families where one person has died and then the whole concept of being widowed changes dramatically if you have two husbands as i do uh, i i certainly am very very not wanting any either of them to die but i know that someday they will and uh you know the, the idea that if you lose a partner as tragic and as much as you'd be grieving the fact that you would have another partner to help you through that wow that's really wonderful you know to have that comfort i think especially for people like 
myself who have consciously chosen not to have children. I think oftentimes if someone is widowed or they, they have children that, and grandchildren that are going to be there and comfort them. But when you don't have children, you have a very different, you're facing a different situation if you lose a spouse. Yeah. I think also for, you know, for my partners, if they, if I died first, you know, yeah. that they would have each other as best friends, you know, they're not partners in the romantic sense but they have each other as lifelong best friends and they have they have other people they can count on i'm not leaving them all alone in the world yeah i was going to say on the flip side of what you're saying is that exact thing is you then you know you can probably feel extremely guilty if you maybe you know you're about to die and you think well you're just leaving your partner alone in the world and some of that burden is is lifted for you. So I think that's that's also something that people don't really think about. No, <laughs> but it's, I can see how that's very comforting. And because, yeah, you, I think the more people that you have surrounding you and the more close people that are emotionally close and, and just supportive, you know, the better that all of that can be navigated, I think. Yeah, and I think when you're younger, you're more thinking about sexual freedom and, you know, exploring different uh, sexual relationships and romantic, you you love that falling in love experience, you know. Uh, For me, it was never so, I mean, I love great sex, I'm a big sex maniac, but uh, it was never as much about the sex as like the falling in love, the getting to know someone, really connecting emotionally with someone. Whereas I know for a lot of polyamorous people, they're much more oriented towards just having, you know, fun sexual relationships. They're not like looking to fall in love with anyone else. And yeah. you know, it varies so much from person to person, what you're, what you're seeking and what you get out of it. And sometimes people think they're just looking for some sexual variety and then they do fall in love and say, wow, this is so great. I never knew this could happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. I've heard well, so many people say, oh, I could never fall in love with more than one person. I just want casual sex on the side, you know. But then they discover, wow, I, I did fall in love with two people. Wow, I never thought that could happen. Right, and then it happens, exactly. <laughs> That's one of the great things about polyamory. You think you're looking for one thing, you might find something else and be even happier with it. Yeah. yeah. You were going to say something. Well, yeah, I was I was curious through, you said you've you've had these two partners for around 40 years or so. Has there ever been a time throughout there that you kind of were like, you know, maybe I'm I'm done with the non-monogamy or having an open relationship and I'm we're just going to have one one relationship from now on or have you been able to just it's it's been uh, amazing the whole time? For me, great, you know, just I never, yeah, never would have crossed my mind. Uh, previously, I did have a girlfriend for almost ten years, and uh, at a certain point for some reason she woke up one day and said you know I think I want to become monogamous and you know get married and have children and you know she wanted to find you know the a woman to marry settle down have children and you know that was quite devastating to me (laughs) I mean we had gotten together when we were very young uh, maybe 20 we were about 20 when we got together so you know she was at that point where she just was around almost 31 to have kids said yeah. well i want to get married have children uh so she did find another woman get married and had children and you know lived happily ever after so it turned out it was the right thing for her but um i have certainly seen it happen quite often that for some people for a lot of people polyamory is a 
wonderful, happy experience for many years, but at a certain time, they decide they want something else. And that doesn't mean they weren't polyamorous to start with. It just means that, you know, in different developmental stages of our lives, we may have different needs. I've seen some people who it went the other direction. They were very monogamous when they were young. They got married young, had children. It made a lot more sense to be pair bonded with one person, raise children together, and then later on became polyamorous and we're very happily polyamorous so I, I do think our needs can change over time and our desire or our orientation towards monogamy uh, or polyamory is it's not always fixed for life right as we've yeah, i'm sure you know people who you know for many years they thought they were 100 percent gay and then they realized they were bisexual or they may have or vice versa yeah <laughs> The other, yeah, at some point, I've certainly known women, particularly, who got married and had children with a man as, at a young age, and somehow at some point said, wow, you know, I'm really more oriented towards women. So uh, it doesn't mean they were wrong in the first place. It just mm. means, you know, our sexual orientation and our relational orientation for some people is not 100% fixed. Yes. No, I love that. I love that point because it's so true. And we are all, you know, you're supposed to grow and change throughout life. And that's just a piece of growing and changing is, is exploring that on a continual basis. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, some people are, I want to add, some people are 100% heterosexual or 100% gay. And there is, that is 100% fixed. And some people seem to be 100% monogamous for life and other mm-hmm. people be a totally polyamorous from from their for their whole life span but there are a lot of us that i call the bisexuals of the poly mono spectrum where we can be happy in a monogamous relationship with the right person at the right time in our lives and we can be perfectly happy in a poly relationship at the right time and with the right people yeah find the right situation right which brings me to another issue i I hope you don't mind me changing the subject a little uh oftentimes people are unhappy in polyamory because they're not in the right model it takes them years of struggling to figure out what the right polyamorous model of relationship is for them so they may think oh i'm not really poly maybe i should go back to being monogamous i'm really unhappy but it may just be they haven't found the right situation that really has the right kind of uh relationship style and model for them yeah and we've actually talked to people on our podcast about that and that have changed over time yeah so that's a great point so i guess do you have maybe if you if you don't mind outlining a couple of the different models that you've seen and were those always models that I mean, again, you, you, like you said, you kind of blazed your own trail. So it's not like back in 1969, you're like, I think I'm a relationship anarchist or something <laughs> to that effect. Right. So like, at what point were you sort of starting to develop some of the ideas behind these and how have you seen like the introduction of those be, be useful to people? Well, I think, uh, because the, the first two groups of people that could be called polyamorists were gay men and so-called swingers, heterosexual couples that like go to swing parties or do swinging with other couples, so-called swapping partners. Those are the two uh, initial sort of trailblazers. Uh, gay men have been 
having open relationships probably for millennium but you know for definitely at least for the last hundred years have openly been uh they would tend to pair bond with one person live with one person and have casual sexual relationships outside of of that um married type relationship uh, and that certainly was true even when gay people were completely closeted uh and the so-called swingers, you know, the heterosexual married couples, you know, that really started in the 1950s, became a little more publicly known in the 60s and 70s, where just married couples who would strictly have casual sex with other couples, either at parties or through meeting them somehow. Uh, and because both of those models were ma- were based on the marriage model, they were much more like the marriage and cheating model, except it wasn't cheating because you weren't lying <laughs> to anybody. I think those two developed first because marriage was the norm. And even for gay men, marriage of, you know, living with one person was kind of the norm. So uh, the I think those models were so much like traditional marriage that it just made sense that they were just sort of variations on the marriage model. It wasn't really until the 19. 19- 70s, late 70s and 80s, that a few people at least started doing something more like what I call the uh, multiple primary partners model. The marriage and cheating sort of model, I call that the uh, primary secondary model. If you get a primary relationship, any other relationship is going to be either casual or secondary. The multiple primary partners model means that any partner could become primary eventually mm-hmm. and that you are allowing for that possibility that if you may still be in like a marriage or pair bonded situation but any other partner that either person has could potentially eventually become primary uh, and that led to kind of these group marriages and triads and and what i call the joint custody model where you might live with one person half time and live with the other person half time if you have two partners that don't want to live together for some reason or that that model works great for a lot of people because they're it's often hard to find three or more people that are really compatible to live together full time. Yes. <laughs> you know, they don't wash their dishes or they don't pay their bills or, or just because you don't happen to like your partner's partner enough that you really want to live with them seven days a week. <laughs> so, uh, so that model works for a lot of people. It's only been in uh, recent years that really a third model and a fourth model have developed. The third model is, Uh, What I always called in the old days the multiple non-primary partners model, which just means you have more partner, more than one partner, but none of them are primary and you don't live with any of them. Now people are calling that the poly, uh, the solo poly model. They've kind of just a new name, but I think it's the same thing where you're single and you don't really want marriage or a primary relationship. This model seems to work great for people that have a primary relationship with something else in their lives, like their work. They're totally devoted to their work 70 hours a week, uh, or they are uh, artists who are into their art or they're musicians. They tour all the time, that kind of thing. Uh, or single moms. A lot of single moms are in the solo poly model because their primary relationship is with their children and raising their children, and they do not want a partner to interfere with that in any way Uh, so then there's what people are calling the relationship anarchy model which i personally have never seen that model work i'm not against it i just think most people can't 
do it. <laughs> and I, I have not seen any success with that model. I'm sure some people are succeeding. I just have not seen it. Um, it often seems to me to be a a kind of a cover for people that just are very narcissistic and don't want to commit to anyone and who want control of other people and their relationships. They claim they don't want anyone putting any rules on them, but really what they're saying is they want total control of the relationship. They're not going to allow it. They're not going to negotiate with anyone about anything. So uh, to me, being that I'm an anarchist, I'm not, I'm an anarchist politically, but I'm not a relationship anarchist because I do believe relationship involves negotiation and accommodation of your partner's needs. Yeah. It's interesting. I think, I would say on the last one, we've we've interviewed a few people who have who have pursued the relationship anarchy model, and they've almost voiced it a polar opposite to sort of what you what the way they they don't they don't want somebody to have the control over them, but they've also said exactly the words of like, well, who am I to tell you what to do with your body? And so. I think maybe we're, there's a shift happening too, where there people are starting to say, "I, I don't control my partners. I don't control their bodies. I don't control their decisions." And and so I'm hopeful that 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 maybe that shift will allow that model to maybe to work a little smoother, potentially. I hope so. I think it's in its infancy, and uh, people don't really quite know how to do it. It's possible they can learn. My experience is that. Most people need more stability, consistency, and security in their lives than that model seems to afford. It, that that model basically says, well, at any time you can be demoted. <laughs> at any time you can be abandoned. I don't owe you anything. I'm not committed to anything with you. Tomorrow I could decide to dump you, and uh, or tomorrow I could decide to marry someone else, and you'll have to become a very secondary and i think most people need a little more kind of consistency in knowing what their status is in your life knowing yeah. knowing where they stand no if you're going to if i'm going to be less important and get less time and attention than three other people i'd like to know that now and i'd like that to be consistent over time rather than i'm the favorite today or this month but next month i might only get one night with you the whole month yeah well and i think that that all goes back to what you said earlier about uh at different phases in our lives we are we need different relationship types and and that that may be a good fit at one point or another in your life. Yeah. Well, and people, we obviously we've talked to people who are trying it and it's working for them at the moment and hopefully that continues and they'll work it out. But who knows? I mean, any, anybody could try any of the models that you discussed and they may work, may not work, but I think it's important to remember that you can change and flex and try different things. Um, just like you said. Very true. Yeah. Very true. Again, yeah, I want to stress, I'm not against that model. I just, yeah, yeah. I've seen so many people get into extreme disaster with it and uh, yeah. cause all kinds of problems in their lives. So <laughs> yeah. I think just haven't figured out how to do it and maybe over time they will. Yeah. Sure. Well, and yeah, you've, you've seen it in your practice, I'm sure. Uh, how, I guess, or why did you decide to go into counseling and um, you said nursing too? 
uh, I was an intensive care unit nurse for many years, uh, and I happened to be working in an intensive care unit, a respiratory intensive care unit in 1981 when uh, the HIV AIDS epidemic suddenly appeared. Because I was in a respiratory ICU and the first uh, all the first patients with AIDS had uh, pneumocystis pneumonia mm-hmm. and were suddenly coming into our unit and dying. Uh, I got very involved in the AIDS epidemic as a result. Yeah. Uh, and because I was you know, very involved in the queer community anyway and had lots of friends who were dying, uh, unfortunately, uh, I got very involved. And uh, after working in the ICU for a long time, I was offered a job uh, in an HIV research practice in San Francisco, and I had a thousand patients with AIDS, and uh, most of them died uh, during that time. We were doing uh, research with uh, experimental drugs for HIV, and during that time period, plenty of the patients said to me, "I know these experimental drugs are not doing me any good, and I know they're going. I know I'm going to die, but I keep coming back because you are giving me so much." counseling and support and that job involved a lot of counseling and support of the the patients their their spouses their lovers their families and other people in their lives and uh as a result i after i left that job i just went into private practice doing counseling i thought i was going to be primarily working with people with aids and other life-threatening illnesses i thought because of my nursing background that would be my area of expertise and it was uh, however because at that time there were no other therapists here in the bay area that uh, had any background with open relationships and there also were almost no therapists that had any background with bisexuality or working with trans people uh, lots of people started coming to me for problems with open relationships or or being bisexual or being transgender and that became the main focus of my practice not out of intention but just because there was no one else I could send them to (laughs) Uh, at that time uh, I went to practice in 1992 at that time uh, therapists were still being very um, aggressively trained with you know marriage and monogamy as the only uh, appropriate model, and, and at that time, even they weren't even getting much in the way of gay affirming training as therapists. So, uh, eventually, that changed quite a bit. Now, there are quite a few therapists that have expertise in open relationships, mm-hmm. but at that time, that uh, so many clients were coming to me because there was really no one else that was non judgmental and had some expertise in the subject. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that accidentally became my accidentally became my area of expertise. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just curious, kind of how what your journey was there, and I think that's that's um, fascinating. That thank you for all the work you did with you know that sounds like it was difficult work, and then but also allowed you to be such a support for so many people during a very very difficult time. Thank you. Um, well, so, along, well, along those same lines, you, you're also. Uh, an author, and you, you mentioned the book, uh, your first book earlier, but you're coming out with a new book or just recently came out with uh, the, the polyamory breakup book. And I guess uh, maybe sort of starting to wrap up here, but do you mind talking about what your motivation behind writing that book was and, and uh, yeah, why you decided to write it? A little bit about it. it, yeah. 
Yeah, actually, this is my third book. My first book was called Love in Abundance. And it's just a very, that's just a kind of a simple how-to book for uh, open relationships. And that came out uh, in the 2010 and the jealousy workbook is about is more of a practical like techniques for dealing with jealousy uh and this new book is called the polyamory breakup book uh causes prevention and survival and i wrote it because i see so many people going through absolutely brutal absolutely devastating breakups in a polyamorous relationship and so many of them could have been prevented by people behaving differently or having more knowledge or kind of being able to have sort of more of a roadmap uh, of how to prevent a breakup. Uh, And so I really wanted to be able to give people that information. And I also wanted to give them an understanding of how to get through it, how to survive it, because uh, polyamorous breakups are in some ways similar to any breakup you're just it's your heart broken it feels like a terrible loss you feel like you can't recover uh, but there have there there are some very specific things that are very different about going through a poly breakup and requires a different skill set in order to do to get through it uh so i really was motivated by both of those things wanting to help people prevent breakups if possible and to help them get through it if if they if it was inevitable yeah. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Well, we will put links to the show notes in the show notes of all to all of your books. Thank and you. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about uh, um, to promote your books or yourself and or just any any final words of wisdom for people? Yes. Mm, yeah. Well, I don't. I can't imagine any words of wisdom, but <laughs> <laughs> well, you've had you've had a lot already. <laughs> um, well, uh, I did want to say uh, one other thing uh, about the book, and that is that I think one of the worst things about going through a poly breakup is people will assume that it's that you're breaking up and it, that it's caused by the non-monogamous nature of the relationship, yes. and then just automatically blame it on that. When uh, in reality, uh, when you have a monogamous breakup, nobody says, well, it, it, of course, of course, you're breaking up because you were monogamous. But when you have polyamorous, oh, well, of course, that would never work. Of course, you you must have known this poly thing would never work. No wonder you're breaking up. But in my experience, only about half of the polyamorous breakups are caused by something that has anything to do with the non-monogamous nature of the relationship. At least half the time, it's from the sort of what I call the usual suspects, sort of the normal things that cause people to break up, you know, incompatibilities around sex or around uh, finances or uh, domestic issues, you know, children, housework, all those kinds of problems that come up as a result of living together, Uh, differences in your needs for intimacy and, and personal freedom and autonomy uh, or or other problems that really are not relationship problems but will destroy a relationship problems like um, drugs and alcohol or uh, untreated mental health conditions or uh, abuse uh, people in abusive relationships these are things that are not really relationship problems those three the 
mental health conditions, uh, drug and alcohol abuse, or other kinds of abuse, because one person brings those problems into the relationship. They're not caused within the relationship, and only one person can solve those problems. But the other problems, like around sex, money, and things like that, are usually relationship problems, uh, they just usually manifest differently in a polyamorous relationship than they do in an monogamous relationship. But they're just as likely to cause the demise of a relationship, whether it's monogamous or polyamorous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point because people do look to the open relationship dynamic of some people's relationship and blames that for any any sort of breakup whatsoever. So. Well, and it's one of the worst things that, you know, about a going through a poly breakup that you don't usually get any kind of support or uh, help from your friends and loved ones because they kind of think, well, you deserved it. Or, of course, that was going to happen. You know, they're not very sympathetic and they can sometimes even say some really uh, cruel and terrible things. So, they, you know, there's uh, there's a whole chapter in the book on what I call managing the public relations of the breakup because there there is so much of that negative uh, feedback that comes up that can really make it uh, harder to get through. But uh, my experience is that by far the uh, most common, by far the most common causes of uh, the polyamorous breakups, the half of them that are caused by polyamory is picking the wrong partners. Usually it's picking someone who wants a monogamous relationship. So naturally that's never going to work if they really want a monogamous relationship and you're in a polyamorous relationship or picking someone who wants a very different model of open relationship than you do. Those are the two biggest causes. And the third big cause is poor time and energy management. People who don't know how to, they don't have the skill set to manage more than one relationship and they end up screwing it up by not being able to balance things. Uh, and then fourth, the, uh, people are often surprised to hear that the fourth and least common cause of polyamorous breakups is jealousy. That jealousy is not, uh, people always think that will be the biggest cause, but it's not. It's actually much less frequent than picking the wrong partners or having poor time and energy management skills. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for, for insight on that. And it's a good little teaser of some of the other stuff that people can find in the book. So we're, we're excited to be able to talk about it. Yeah. Well, I also would mention I have lots of um, free videos and podcasts and things on my website, okay. which is just at thelabriola.com. And that a lot of people have, as I mentioned earlier, stumbled upon those uh, when yeah. they're in a crisis situation and found them to be useful. So I, I encourage people to check that out as well. Excellent. Great. Excellent. We will put a uh, links into the show notes and make sure everyone can find them easily. Mm -hmm. And yeah, thank thank you again for your time and and all the effort you've put in and the work you've done. We appreciate yes, it. Yes, and thank you for reaching out to us and wanting to come on the show too. The show wouldn't happen without people doing that. So. Oh well, thank you. It's great. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah. Absolutely. We'll have a have a great afternoon, and we'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. And we're back. Thank you to Kathy for coming on and sharing all of her infinite wisdom with us. We appreciate the conversation and hearing her story. So, as always, thank you. Yes. 
later this week. As you were going to say next week. I was going to say next week, but I knew we had one later this week on Wednesday. On our normal Wednesday release, we have a story from Robert. I don't think we should say much else. Nope, we're not going to say anything else. All right. It's well, a good one, though. It, it's a good story. It you got to come listen on Wednesday. And we will see you on Wednesday. Until then, don't forget you can come meet us in Boston or Toronto or on our Patreon call if you would like. All the information's on our website if we haven't said that enough already. Normalizingnomonogamy.com. We'll see everybody in two days. Thanks for listening.